0: Board. We will hear argument this morning in case 2512, the National Collegiate Athletic Association versus Halston and the consolidated case. A great deal has changed even since Board of Regents, let alone 100 years ago. So I guess it doesn't move me all that much that there's a history to this. If what is going on now is that um, competitors as to labor are combining to fix prices. I think the trick comes, for me at least, sort of where Justice Kagan was alluding to, which is here the agreement that's really at the center of the case is an agreement among competitors to fix price with the labor market, where you have monopsony control, and that's unusual. It does seem, as Justice Kagan and Justice Gorsuch suggested, Justice Alito, the schools are conspiring with competitors, agreeing with competitors, I'll say that, to pay no salaries to the workers who are making the schools billions of dollars on the theory that consumers want the schools to pay their workers nothing. And that just seems entirely circular and and even somewhat disturbing. If I could just leave the court with one overarching thought, it's this. Petitioners are wrong to argue that any restrictions related to their conception of amateurism, including their horizontal price-fixing agreements, must be upheld without analysis rather than applying the rule of reason. That would be an extraordinary departure from traditional antitrust principles. Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found on my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party directories, Apple Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all those places. And then I also have a blog that I've been writing in for Almost three years now. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. All right. Today is Wednesday, December 29th, 2021. And that's my weak drum roll. We're down to number two in the top 10 stories of twenty. 21. And if you've been wondering where the Austin decision, the Supreme Court decision, was going to land, it's number two. Some people may say, why isn't it number one? I'm going to explain that, I think, when I get to the number one story of 2021. But this Austin case and the U.S. Supreme Court decision has been much discussed, but I think not analyzed appropriately in terms of its significance. And its significance in many ways is largely symbolic. But I just want to say at the beginning, I did a good number of episodes on this case because I had actually been focusing on this way before it became a public story and the S- Supreme Court had taken the case. That was in December of 2020. They accepted the case and then they heard oral argument in March of 2021, and then they issued their opinion on June 21st of 2021. But when I first started my Blogging, and I was kind of re-engaging with an analysis of the business of college sports and looking at the regulatory side and the legal side. And as the NCAA Power 5 campaign and the Senate geared up, and again, that was a stealth campaign, and they were hiding their true intention of trying to get absolute antitrust immunity so that federal courts could be taken completely out of the regulatory field. That was one of the three big things they were asking for. But what got virtually no attention because it was very subtly insinuated into the Austin in litigation, the way the NCAA was litigating this case. And you had to go deep into the archives to really tease out what they were doing here. And I actually had to go down to the footnote level where the NCAA was preserving for appeal its basic argument in that case, which is that the NCAA is entitled to absolute antitrust immunity because of some offhand language in the 1984 Board of Regents decision. And they very carefully disguised that. They were open about that in the Oban case, and they were open about that in the White case in 2006, this cost of attendance case. They came out and said that they were absolutely entitled to antitrust immunity because the NCAA, as a values based nonprofit, wasn't engaged in commercial activity and the antitrust laws didn't apply. And that has been their belief all along since 1984. And that argument got put on the back burner in Austin because the NCAA, I think, didn't want to focus on that. But as the appeal evolved, it became very clear to me that that footnote that was in a Ninth Circuit brief was really a ticking time bomb. And they were saying, look, we haven't abandoned our arguments On antitrust immunity, we're just talking about this injunction that the district court issued in the Austin case. I'm going to get to that in just a second. But it wasn't until the Supreme Court briefing that it became apparent that the NCAA was asking for outright antitrust immunity, and they had denied that dishonestly, disingenuously denied that, both in the Austin litigation and then in their campaign in Congress when the antitrust issue was on the table. So they had two bites at the apple on this crucial component of their campaign to seek the iron throne of college sports regulation and to eliminate federal courts as a potential external regulatory threat to the NCAA's business model and their amateurism based compensation limits. So remember, the athletes didn't appeal the decision the cat of the district court judge or the Ninth Circuit. The NCAA appealed to the Ninth Circuit after this Austin decision came out in 2019, and then they appealed to the Ninth Circuit. The athletes cross appealed, but the Ninth Circuit affirmed the district court's injunction, and then the NCAA appealed this case to the U.S. Supreme Court, and that was a a red flag as well because the terms of this injunction were very modest. They posed virtually no threat to the NCAA's amateurs and base compensation limits, and because of the prior O'Bannon precedent, which basically granted the NCAA a a form of limited antitrust immunity for any benefits that were not quote-unquote tethered to education, that O'Bannon limitation prevented the athletes from having an open and free market for the value of the athlete's services and that limitation was folded into Austin and the athletes initially challenged that because their initial lawsuit in Austin was specifically designed to dismantle all amateurism-based compensation limits. It wasn't just about a specific category of benefits. It, It got whittled down to these education-related benefits because of the O'Bannon limitation. And the O'Bannon limitation just got swept in silently because the athletes didn't cross-appeal at the U.S. Supreme Court level and say, yeah, the original purpose of our lawsuit was to tear down amateurism, to to just bring amateurism to its knees and get it off the landscape. And we're going with a full free open labor market for the value of athlete services. They abandoned that argument. And so what was left was nothing more than the affirmance of this carefully tailored, limited injunction that didn't present to the U.S. Supreme Court the opportunity to strike down amateurism and you just deal a, a death blow to the concept of amateurism. And so as I was writing about that, and then in March when I transitioned into the podcast, and so I was talking about the Austin case. I really emphasized the narrowness of the issues as framed on appeal because the athletes weren't going for the takedown of amateurism the complete takedown of the entire amateurism-based model. They pulled back, and they focused on these limited category of education-related benefits, and they were very clear at oral argument on March 31st that they were not pursuing anything more than a mere affirmance of the terms of that injunction. So the Austin Supreme Court decision was actually a very narrow ruling on the law, but it was significant for reasons that had nothing to do with the actual substantive issue on the wisdom of this particular and very modest injunction. And uh, antitrust law is very complicated. It can really get to, you know, wah, wah, wah very quickly. That's a challenge. It's been one of the challenges in my work because I focus so much on the regulation and the legal side and what's happening in Congress and, and all that. But some understanding of the basic principles of antitrust law are important here. And I just want to direct you to some episodes that I did on this Austin case. Let's see, I did uh, episode seven through 13. So that's seven episodes. And I start with kind of an antitrust primer and then walk through the arguments in the Austin case. And I take that through the oral argument, which was on March 31st. And when the Supreme Court released its opinion unanimous opinion on June 21st. I did two episodes on the decision itself, and those were episodes 29 and 30. But for the purposes of this episode, I'm just going to do a brief discussion about the basic antitrust principles, the basic issues in the case, and then I'm going to give you a guided tour of the actual opinion. It's really important how judges frame the issues in a judicial opinion, particularly in appellate opinion. I guess I'll just say this. I have experience in appellate litigation, including work in the United States Supreme Court. I'm familiar with how these arguments are constructed by the parties as they're making their appeal. And I'm also familiar with how judges analyze those arguments and how the opinion is structured in ways that may send subtle messages that wouldn't be apparent to a layperson. And in this Supreme Court opinion authored by Justice Neil Gorsuch. He delivered the opinion for the court and all eight other justices joined in. Kavanaugh submitted a concurring opinion. I'll talk a little bit about that, but it didn't change the judgment of the court. But Gorsuch, really in a very subtle way, and he's a very understated kind of jurist. He's not given to hyperbole. He makes his points with a chisel, not a sledgehammer. And boy, the way that this opinion was structured, the way that it framed the case and the concept of amateurism, and then the way that it handled the arguments that the NCAA made, it was full of these very subtle darts and these little tidbits where it was clear to me that Gorsuch wanted to send a message to the NCAA. And it had in some ways the luxury of doing that without having to deal with this really big question about whether amateurism itself should just be struck down and ruled a facial violation of antitrust laws and all NCAA compensation limits are just going to be taken off the books and the labor market as in almost every other labor market in this country will be left to the free market and you'll have principles of economic liberty and quality of opportunity and egalitarianism and all the things that make this country great operating on behalf of this unique labor force in uh, big-time football and big-time men's basketball. And that's the way it ought to be. It's a unique market, and there's some, some limitations that have to be taken into account. But what Gorsuch in the court was saying is to the NCAA ultimately is that you're not special. And I think some of these darts that Gorsuch put into that opinion were a clear message to the NCAA that you have just grossly overplayed your hand here. You're not above the law and you're not entitled to special treatment. So what I'm going to do is just, again, talk a little bit about the antitrust principles and I'm going to talk about what the district court did and how the case m- made it uh, up to the Supreme Court and identify some of the themes up front and the tactics that the NCAA used that I think really rubbed this court the wrong way. But if you've been following the NCAA and you have read the judicial decisions that have come out where the NCAA has been a a party, you feel that arrogance, that sense that they are above the law, that they're invincible, that they're special because they're the guardians of this amateur ideal. And the NCAA simply hasn't conformed to the reality of the business model in the 21st century, and it is just as arrogant and just as condescending and just as full of bad faith arguments in 2021 as it has ever been. And I think that really came through in the way that they briefed this case. I'm going to talk about that as well. So let's talk real quickly about these basic principles. So we have the Sherman Antitrust Laws And those are designed to promote free and fair competitions, pretty simple stuff. And those laws are predicated upon values, American values of open and free markets, of equality of opportunity, of economic liberty, of egalitarianism, and, and again, all the things that make this country so special. And these laws are designed to make sure that all those principles are protected at the operational level out in the real market where at least in theory all this beautiful chaotic wild west competition is taking place to make things better competition makes things better and i'll just issue this disclaimer as i talk about this these are going to be oversimplifications. <laughs> and although i did a lot of federal litigation i didn't do antitrust law it's a very specialized area of the law look This is about free and fair competition and under the antitrust laws where there is an allegation that a market participant has engaged in anti-competitive behavior, there's a legal remedy through the Sherman Act and then the Clayton Act, which was an amendment to the Sherman Act. And the two threshold questions are, one, does the market actor actually engage in commerce? Are they subject to antitrust rules? Are they engaging in some kind of activity that takes them outside? side of the antitrust laws. Then the second thing is, assuming that they're subject to antitrust laws, is there a market behavior that's anti-competitive? And then uh, the next question, if there's anti-competitive behavior is whether or not there is a pro-competitive justification for that behavior. And then there's a third step on less restrictive alternatives, and that was important in analyzing the injunction itself. But we're really only going to concern ourselves with these initial threshold questions because that's where the NCAA lands. They say we really don't even need to get into breaking down this injunction because these laws don't apply to us. We're entitled to absolute antitrust immunity, and they use three separate Arguments to try to get to that. But that was actually the only issue that was on appeal here. You know, as a practical matter, the only only substantial issue on appeal here was whether the National Collegiate Athletic Association was going to be held to the same standard as any other industry in this country or whether they were going to get a free pass from antitrust scrutiny because they're the guardians of amateurism. That's the long and short of it. And so procedurally, you you had the trial Back in, I guess it was 2018, the trial started, maybe December of 2018, and then you had an opinion come out in March of 2019. It was a bench trial. The judge, Claudia Wilkins, the same judge who heard the O'Bannon case, and so she's very familiar with the NCAA's anti-competitive behaviors. And she ran this case through, and when this case was first filed, it got all kinds of media attention because the plaintiff's attorney, Jeffrey Kessler, is a famous antitrust lawyer, and he's handled a number of high-profile cases cases, mostly in professional sports, but this was a a real threat, at least that's how people initially perceived it, because he knew what he was doing. So we had all this hype, this is the case, this is the case, it's going to bring amateurism to its knees, and as it evolved, that really didn't happen. Again, I talked about that in my episode 7 to 13, but the case wound up being reduced to whether or not these athletes were going to be allowed to get some education-related benefits that NCAA rules and regulations prohibited. And the district court crafted a very narrow injunction that identified a very small set of education-related benefits that the judge said would be permissible and that the NCAA's restrictions were unreasonable. They didn't pass muster under the antitrust analysis that she used. That is what's called the full rule of reason analysis, which is this holistic evaluation of all aspects of the market behavior and then the impact on participants in the market and people relevant to the market. And that analysis focused on what was best for consumers. So this was a consumer-facing analysis, not really a labor-facing analysis. And that's another complicated issue. That's, it's very important. But for the purposes of analyzing this Austin decision, we were operating under this consumer-facing analytical framework. In this analysis, the NCAA was essentially saying that consumers had a preference for the amateur product, the, the amateurism part of the big-time college sports marketplace, and that if amateurism was either watered down or eliminated altogether, consumers would flee. That was basically their pro-competitive justification. They essentially conceded that they engaged in anti-competitive behavior and for the purposes of this Austin case, because they didn't really spring the antitrust immunity argument until they were in the Supreme Court, they were conceding for the sake of argument that they were subject to the antitrust laws, but that this amateurism pro-competitive justification made their behavior entirely appropriate because without amateurism then the college sports marketplace comes to a fatal collapse. That was their basic argument. Judge Wilkin, having heard all the NCAA's amateurism BS for almost 10 years, she, she rejected that, just like she did in O'Bannon. And she said, Look, we can give your amateurism argument some credit, but that doesn't answer the question here because there are some other ways that you could protect whatever limited interest you have in amateurism. And she viewed it as a limited interest. She didn't give a lot of weight to it, but she said, Okay. She said, Look, We'll give you a little bit of credit for that but there are other ways that you could protect your pro competitive interests without just an outright elimination of all of these education related benefits so she puts together this extraordinarily limited injunction that takes the NCAA out of the driver's seat on these education related benefits and uh, she turns them over to the power five conferences because the plaintiffs the athletes Kessler they sued the major conferences too so you we had the power five as defendants. So the judge used some information from the athletes' experts and cobbled together portions of their recommendations and basically came up with this model where the NCAA couldn't cap these limited education-related benefits, but then turned over control of those benefits to the conferences. And This is another very important feature of the injunction order that got very little attention. The injunction was purely permissive. So the Power Five, they didn't have to do anything. They could offer some of those benefits, none of those benefits benefits or all of those benefits, so long as whatever decision they made was not the product of anti-competitive collusion. That's the order in a nutshell. The NCAA was screaming on appeal, oh, this is going to be the end of college sports, and we're going to have these $100,000 internships, and we're going to have people buying cars for these athletes, saying that they have some educational value, all this parade of horribles, which was absurd on its face. And the Supreme Court didn't spend a lot of time talking about the actual injunction because they came out and said, look, the NCAA is not really talking about that. This injunction isn't that important to them. And I said that all along. The injunction itself posed very little threat to the NCAA. They just wanted to push this case through the appellate process to get the antitrust immunity argument on the table. But the the court just dismantled the NCAA's gloom and doom portrayal of this injunction, and they made short work of it because some of these arguments were just ridiculous. But that is the power of the NCAA as a propagandist, and it was precisely that kind of fear-mongering that has been successful in federal litigation where the NCAA's compensation limits have been challenged. Because they're telling these federal judges, if you rule against us, you're going to be the judge that's going to bring college sports to a fatal collapse. And I did that episode eight on judicial fealty to amateurism. And I talked about that dynamic. And that dynamic was actually present even with Judge Wilkin and some of the Ninth Circuit judges who heard O'Bannon and Austin. So it's a very powerful dynamic. And I think when I get to the true impact of this Austin decision, one of the things that's so important about it at the symbolic level is that that fear mongering now has Far less power than it did before this Austin decision. So the NCAA and the Power Five defendants, and this is important too, the conference defendants and the NCAA were marching in lockstep in their litigation strategy in Austin. One of the ironies I talked about in my prior episodes was that you have this order that really places the NCAA on the bench on these education-related benefits and turns it over to the Power Five, but the, the Power Five were fighting tooth and nail to make the same arguments that the NCAA did, and that was that the NCAA and only the NCAA should be able to make these decisions. And this really goes back to my first principle when I started this podcast. And I said this whole discussion about athletes' rights and whether they should be paid or how much they should be paid is really not the issue. The real issue here is who gets to decide. And the way that the NCAA framed the issues in this case, that was the fundamental question. And they were saying that the NCAA and only the NCAA should make these decisions. And they wanted federal courts to butt out and that was the the values-based predicate for their argument for antitrust immunity. And the Power Five were saying the same doggone thing. So you had this order that was kind of an illusion. It was a bit of a mirage because it looked like the NCAA was being limited here in its exercise of regulatory authority, but really it was not that consequential because the control of these benefits was put in the hands of people who were seeking the same result as the NCAA. And that was essentially antitrust immunity. So it was a, an interesting order. Anyway, the NCAA appeals to the Ninth Circuit. In the Ninth Circuit, you have panels of three judges to hear these appeals. The athletes didn't File the appeal, but after the NCAA appealed, the athletes filed a cross appeal, keeping alive the, the argument from their original lawsuit and that is that we just want to take down all of these amateurism-based compensation limits. We're just going to deal a death blow to amateurism itself. And the Ninth Circuit upheld the district court decision in all aspects. It affirmed the injunction, but it also upheld the district court's ruling that the athletes were not entitled to an open and free market for the value of their services because of this O'Bannon limitation that was drawn. And The Ninth Circuit is bound by O'Bannon because it's a prior precedent. So basically the injunction's upheld, it's a unanimous decision in the Ninth Circuit. Then the NCAA appeals the case. And when you hear some of the comments from Justice Gorsuch, you get the sense that he is saying to the NCAA what the hell are you thinking here? You essentially won this case and then you appealed it and now you're going to get what you deserve because <laughs> there is no reason for you to have appealed this decision, which in many ways was very deferential to your conceptualization of amateurism. And it was very limited and posed very little threat to you. So the NCAA appeals the case to the U.S. Supreme Court and that appeal was filed in October of 2020. And then you have briefing on this threshold question of whether the court should take the case and then if the court decides to take the case you do another round of briefing and argument on why you should win so the court receives the briefing on whether they should take the case and then they decide that they're going to take the case that decision was made on December 16th of 2020 and I have to confess that when I looked at how the issues were framed on appeal how narrow they were and then I saw that the U.S. Supreme Court took the case as framed my initial thinking was the Supreme Court's inclined to just grant the NCAA antitrust immunity. There are at least four justices. You know, four justices have to agree to hear a case. There are four justices who think that the NCAA just needs to be sitting in the iron throne of college sports regulation, and we're going to end all this discussion. I was wrong thankfully. But I don't think anybody was predicting a unanimous Supreme Court decision rejecting the NCAA's arguments. And then you had the November election, so the Republicans lose the White House. The Senate's in the balance. Then in early January, you have the Senate going to the Democrats and the NCAA's out of the driver's seat in in Congress. And then a very important thing happens that I think really was a difference maker in how the court looked at this case. Right before oral argument in March, the United States of America America intervenes in the lawsuit and they want to participate at oral argument and they are arguing essentially on behalf of the athletes. They're saying that the NCAA is isn't entitled to antitrust immunity. They are not special. That was a game changer, and I, I think it influenced how the court looked at the audacity of the NCAA's request here for antitrust immunity. And as I've said before, you, you never really know what's going on behind the scenes. You don't know why the Supreme Court takes the case. This is a really Byzantine process, what happens behind the Supreme Court administrative veil. So you really are reading tea leaves. Always a dangerous thing to do with the U.S. Supreme court, as I proved myself when I was making predictions that they were going to probably grant the NCAA antitrust immunity. But the complexion of this case changed dramatically from the time the petition was filed initially in October of 2020 until the oral argument in March of 2021. And I think that was really important in how the justices were were thinking about this case. Before I get into the case and we're going to do this guided tour. I just want to talk about a couple of the tactics that the NCAA employed because when I go through the case I'm going to point out the very subtle ways that Justice Gorsuch really took down those tactics. And one of the things that the NCAA always does in federal litigation where its regulatory authority is challenged is that they trot out this holy dicta from a board of regents and they make the argument that the Supreme Court has essentially blessed the NCAA's role as the sole regulator in college sports, and that if any external regulator comes in and interferes with that authority, there is going to be calamity and a fatal collapse of college sports. And that fear-mongering is just loaded with arrogance. And that came through loud and clear in the way that they pitched this case in the U.S. Supreme Court. The other thing that they did, and I think this really just pissed off, the justices, but they tried to isolate Judge Wilkin and portray her as this rogue judge, this single judge who had arrogated to herself the superintendence of all of college sports. But in their briefing about whether the court should take the case, they just took some cheap shots at Judge Wilkin. And in the NCAA's opening brief, their very first argument to the United States Supreme Court in the very first substantive paragraph of their brief on page two under the title of introduction said this, At issue in this case is whether the nationwide rules that define who is eligible to participate in NCAA sports will henceforth be set by the NCAA or by one federal judge in California, assisted by the imagination of plaintiff's lawyers and subject only to deferential Ninth Circuit review. And then they go on to say, Fundamental principles of antitrust law as reflected in this court's precedent make clear that the NCAA, not a single jurist, should set the rules for college sports. But that was just a bold, bold move. And I, I wrote about this in my blog. And I just said, you know, I, I think sometimes advocates who are representing values-based clients and they're making values-based arguments, they get all caught up in their self-righteousness. In my judgment, this was just a really bad strategy call right out of the blocks, and they just go right at Judge Wilkin. And they're trying to make her look like the rogue judge, that she's unreasonable, that she has an agenda, that she is the the fringe lunatic, and she is outside the mainstream. And the, the implication there is that there is consensus out in the world and in the federal judiciary and in the court of public opinion that the NCAA and only the NCAA should have unchecked authority as a national regulator in college sports and that just reflects i think also this narcissistic instinct at the institutional level institutional narcissism and the blindness that that creates to how other people actually look at you that comes through in the ncaa's on so many levels but it was on full display in their briefing in the u.s supreme court you just don't do this this is a federal judge a sitting federal judge that they are basically accusing of being the problem. Judge Wilkins the problem, not the NCAA's market behavior. It's this woman, this rogue actor, this judge out in California who's messing things up for everybody. (laughs) And then there's one more tactic that the NCAA employs, and they employed it in this case. That is that they will make the extraordinary seem commonplace. And then on the flip side of that, They will make the commonplace seem extraordinary. The NCAA, in its extraordinary request, for absolute antitrust immunity, they make it seem like it's just some pedestrian application of the usual rule of reason analysis. And it's just this quick look, and it's just this abbreviated differential review where we get a tiny little bump here because we're the guardians of amateurism. No, this is just a, a massive ask. And the solicitor general, acting solicitor general, Elizabeth Prelager, made that point beautifully at oral argument. And she said that what the NCAA was asking for it was an extraordinary departure from antitrust principles, but the NCAA makes it sound like it's just this small little commonplace thing. And then the other thing that they do on the flip side of that is that they try to make the commonplace seem extraordinary. And they do that by the way that they characterize Judge Wilkins' conduct and her order, uh, her injunction order, and her motives. There is nothing extraordinary at all about Judge Wilkins' injunction order or the way she analyzed this case. She was right down the middle with a very conservative, lowercase c, analysis of the issues in this case. And her ruling was backed up by solid evidence, years of discovery, a full trial, and a thoughtful analysis. But the NCAA portrayed that standard application of traditional antitrust laws as extraordinary. What this judge was doing here was so far outside of the mainstream that she posed a singular threat to college sports as we know them. And when you look at how Justice Gorsuch... Analyze this case, you really see that he understood all of those tactics, and in a very subtle, but I think a very deliberate way, he dismantled those narratives. So let me go to the opinion itself, and the way these opinions are structured, you have what's called the syllabus, where the court does basically just a summary of the issues, how they've been resolved, and all that stuff, and in it, it's interesting because they use the word amateur in quotation marks. I just love that. Amateur student athletes. <laughs> you know, the syllabus isn't it doesn't have any legal effect. It's just really for people who just want to get a real quick summary of, of what the issues were, how the, the court looked at them, and then how they ultimately ruled. In this opinion, then you have the introduction. And this is where the Supreme Court summarizes what this case is all about. And then they go into a history. uh, The facts, what are the facts? And how you frame the facts is so important. There are many versions of facts revolving around a a single lawsuit. How the advocates frame the facts can be really important, sometimes decisive, in how the case is received at the advocacy level, the persuasion level. And then in a legal opinion, how the court frames the facts is crucial in how they're really thinking about this case. So uh, then they go from their factual discussion to the legal analysis. So we're going to go through all that. But this first introductory paragraph by Gorsuch is so important. And I think this is where the, the court makes very clear that this ruling by this rogue judge in California was a good, sensible, down-the-middle ruling that she authored with great humility. And he says that later on, not in this paragraph. But this is, I think, saying straight up that we're rejecting your personal attack or your Saul Alinsky tactics against Claudia Wilkin. She's a good judge. She was very thoughtful. She was very thorough. She basically split on the advocate's arguments and her injunction made sense. So here's what Gorsuch says. In the Sherman Act, Congress tasked courts with enforcing a policy of competition on the belief that market forces yield the best allocation of the nation's resources. And there are all kinds of cases Gorsuch could have cited for that proposition, but he cites National Collegiate Athletic Association versus Board of Regents, and that that was a little dart there too. The plaintiffs before us brought this lawsuit alleging that the National Collegiate Athletic Association and certain of its member institutions violated this policy by agreeing to restrict the compensation colleges and universities may offer the student-athletes who play for their teams. After amassing a vast record and conducting an exhaustive trial, the district court issued a 50-page opinion that cut both ways. The court refused to disturb the NCAA's rules limiting undergraduate athletic scholarships and other compensation related to athletic performance. At the same time, the court struck down NCAA rules limiting the education-related benefits schools may offer student-athletes, such as rules that prohibit schools from offering graduate or vocational school scholarships. Before us, the student-athletes do not challenge the district court's judgment, but the NCAA does. In essence, it seeks immunity from the normal operation of antitrust laws and argues, in any event, that the district court should have approved all of its existing restraints. We took this case to consider those objections. Now, there's a lot in that. And again, if you're a layperson, you read through that, it may not seem consequential. But in that introduction, in that initial framing, Justice Gorsuch is saying one, Judge Wilkin is a good judge she's not a rogue outlier with an agenda against the NCAA and he's saying that she was reasonable She looked at all the evidence. She rejected the athlete's argument that there should be a full and open market for the value of athlete services, but she also said that the NCAA's compensation limits on education-related benefits were not reasonable, and they violated the rule of reason antitrust analysis. Heaven forbid that an education nonprofit be forced to offer education-related benefits. I think that's another irony that I don't think was lost on the justices. But then the other thing that they say is that the athlete's didn't appeal the case they were okay with it and they he does in four words something that I think is really important. He says, but the NCAA doesn't. He takes some other darts throughout the decision. But why the hell the NCAA appealed this case? And then he brings it home in this last sentence. In essence, the NCAA seeks immunity from the normal operations of antitrust laws. That's what this case is all about. And what I think he's saying from the very beginning in very subtle ways is that the NCAA has this upside down and inside out. And the ask here, for antitrust immunity is an extraordinary ask that's not justified by principles of antitrust law. Uh, So now it's on to to the facts. And this factual recital is a complete takedown of amateurism. It makes a mockery of the NCAA's claims that amateurism is this pristine ideal that has existed uh, since its inception in the late 19th century, was adopted when the NCAA was founded in 1906, and has been the backbone of uh, the values of the NCAA since then. And they, they rely in part on sports historians, and I, I noted that some sports historians, Taylor Branch, John Thielen, a professor, Ronald Smith, a professor, they filed a friend of the court brief where they basically made these same arguments. And the court goes outside the record and, and looks at some outside resources. But I'm just going to go through and just give some snippets how they frame this. So they say, From the start, this is the first sentence of their factual recitation. From the start, American colleges and universities have had a complicated relationship with sports and money. And that's Gorsuch at his understated best, (laughs) a complicated relationship. Then he goes on to just uh, hammer amateurism. And he says from the very beginning, this 1852 rowing contest between Harvard and Yale, which a lot of people say was the first intercollegiate athletic contest. Even in that, which was supposed to be the launch of amateurism, the sponsor of that race Gave the athletes an all expense paid trip and lavish prizes. So, from the very beginning, this whole amateurism thing didn't make any sense. And then he talked about how football really became the fulcrum for all this criticism about the commercialized nature of college football, going back to really the late 19th century, early 20th century. He he invokes the Carnegie Report, 1929 Carnegie Report, that I I talked quite a bit about. And he says that in football, by the late... 1880s the traditional rivalry between Princeton and Yale was attracting 40,000 spectators and generating sums uh, in excess of $25,000 from gate receipts. It was a money maker and schools regularly had graduate students and paid ringers on their teams. And then they talk about a Yale uh, football player, he was a tackle, his name was James Hogan, and to entice him to play for Yale Walter Camp, who's the father of American football, but he was really right behind a lot of this professionalization. They gave Hogan free meals and tuition, a trip to Cuba the exclusive right to sell scorecards for his games, and a job as a cigarette agent for the American Tobacco Company. You just can't make this stuff up. I love that. And he talks about these tramp athletes who roam the country making cameo athletic appearances moving on whenever the money was better. And then Gorsuch says, reality did not always match aspiration. And then he talks about the Carnegie Report and all of its findings. I talked about that in my Pay for Play series. And a lot of this factual recitation I cover in in my pay-for-play series. When you look at it historically, this whole argument that amateurism is a sacred and principle is just really ridiculous on its face. But in the Carnegie Report... One of the things they did was they looked at all of the ways that amateurism was undermined and how you had revenue, you had boosters paying people, you had other sources of revenue that made it into the athlete's hands. And it was described as an organized commercial enterprise. And this is back in 1929. And then the court says that in 1939, a freshman at the University of Pittsburgh went on strike because the upperclassmen were reportedly earning more money than he was. And then in the 1940s, a halfback football player named Hugh McElhenney at the University of Washington became known as the first college player ever to take a cut in salary to play pro football. And then he moves forward to the debate over the sanity code that I talked about in pay for play and the adoption in 1956 of the full athletics scholarship. And he suggests, and I think this is true, that that was an outright form of payment. And then Gorsuch brushes up against the autonomy movement in 2014. I think he could have done a lot more with this, but he talks about the Power Five adopting the full cost of attendance scholarship, and then all these other funds, the Student Assistant Fund, the Academic Enhancement Fund, and all this stuff that are funds that athletes can draw money from. Then he says, over the decades, the NCAA has become a sprawling enterprise, and they talk about all the money that's coming in at the division one level through march madness through the cfp through the conference intakes and he gives examples of all those things and he says at the center of this thicket of associations and rules sits a massive business and a lot of these statistics that he cites and he talks about the president of the ncaa earning four million dollars per year and the sec's conference revenues of 650 million in 2017 and all that stuff. Those have become cliches, and you see these numbers cited all the time. But it's important to to put them in context. In the, in, in the framework of this factual presentation, you see the absurdity of the amateurism argument, both historically and then when then when it's sitting side by side with the obvious and massive commercialization. He talks about the conference commissioner salaries. I've talked about all that stuff, but it's important to throw in. And then... The court gets to the legal analysis. And I guess before I get to that, I'll just say, if you go back and you look at the prior Supreme Court decisions that relate to the NCAA, like Board of Regents and then this Tarkanian decision, I would say Tarkanian more than Board of Regents because... Board of Regents didn't have anything to do with really NCAA values. It was a business case. The Tarkanian decision, even though it didn't relate to athlete compensation limits, it related to values. And they were saying, this guy's a bad actor and he's breaking all the rules and he's violating all these principles of amateurism and we're gonna throw him under the bus. When you compare the factual presentation of the Tarkanian decision in 1988 with this factual presentation in 2021, you're, you wouldn't think that those two entities could be the same. There was extraordinary deference to the NCAA. And Jerry Tarkanian was the bad actor. And the NCAA was on the right side of justice and, and amateurism virtue and all the things that make college sports great. They, they didn't look realistically and honestly at the business model. They were just right down the line, NCAA all the way. That, I think, shows you how much things have changed at the values level, at the normative level, and, and at the public opinion level. But I, th- I would still say that very few people thought that we were going to get this opinion from the United States Supreme Court in Austin, and that they were going to be this clear about their disdain for the NCAA's conceptualization and use of amateurism in 2021. So then the court goes on to describe the history of the case, this Austin case, what happened in the district court then the Ninth Circuit and how the issues were framed on appeal. I'm going to pick up really After that, when they are getting into the analysis, but at the end of that factual presentation and the fact that the NCAA essentially won this case on some of the most basic principles that it claims it needs to protect, and the court begins its analysis by saying, unsatisfied with this result, the NCAA asks us to reverse to the extent the lower court sided with the student athletes. And that's an important dart that... Gorsuch throws out. What he's saying there, unsatisfied with this result, he's saying, why the hell did you appeal this case? Whatever is about to come after this sentence, (laughs) the beating you're going to take is self-imposed. You brought this on yourself. Then he observes something else that's really important. He says some of the issues most frequently debated in antitrust litigation are uncontested. They're absolutely uncontested. And he says put simply, this suit involves admitted horizontal price fixing in a market where the defendants, the NCAA and the conference defendants, exercise monopoly control. That's one sentence that summarizes the entire business model. Admitted horizontal price fixing in a market where the defendants exert and exercise monopoly control. He goes on to say no one disputes that the NCAA's amateurism-based restrictions, in fact, and he puts in fact in italics, decrease the compensation that student-athletes would receive compared to what a competitive market would yield. So all these things that are typically the focus of antitrust disputes, how you define the market, whether or not there's an anti-competitive behavior, whether the impact in the market was going to be detrimental to the people who claim that there's an antitrust violation. So all those things have been conceded. So what exactly is it that we're fighting about? So he he says, with all these matters taken as given, we express no views on them. Instead, we focus only on the objections that NCAA does raise. And he puts does in italics. He then gets to the heart of the matter here and really takes down these arguments that the NCAA made that they were entitled to some type of antitrust immunity. And they disguised that with a couple of things they claimed were were within the rule of reason, like this quick look or this abbreviated deferential review where a court just looks at the restriction at issue. And if it's an amateurism-based restriction, the NCAA wins. And they just get a motion to dismiss, and then they're on about their way. But they also make the argument, and the court addresses this argument, that the NCAA isn't subject to antitrust scrutiny at all because it's not engaged in commercial activity that it's just this little old garden variety nonprofit education nonprofit that, uh, is based on values that really have nothing to do with money that's their essential argument here and it's an, again an argument that they have made going back to these athletes rights cases in, in 2006 with the white case and an important part of that so what, what they're essentially saying, in part, is that because of the uniqueness of college sports and the necessity to agree on some basic rules in order for the product to exist at all, and there's no question about that. There have to be rules of the game. You have to know how many players are going to be on the field. You have to know what color jerseys you're going to wear. You have to know what numbers you uh, you can put on the jerseys. You need to know how many minutes are in a game. You need to know what criteria determines who wins and who loses. You know, all of those basic rules, and because those rules are necessary, the courts have given the NCAA and other sports leagues some latitude in determining how to operate their enterprise and how to define their, their product. But what the NCAA has done, and this is one of the fatal flaws in, in their thinking, and the court just dispenses with this very quickly. They make short shrift of this argument. The NCAA says because... We are required to cooperate in a way that's collusive and it's anti-competitive, I guess, in some ways, but it's necessary for the product to exist at all. If we don't have those basic rules, our product doesn't exist. We can't play the games. The games can't go on. And then they take that necessary cooperation and then they conflate that with these compensation limits. And they say that these compensation limits are just as necessary to their product as the rules of the game and the number of minutes in a game or the number of players on a field. That those two things are the same and the court just rips that apart. But the NCAA has gotten really 37 years of benefit out of that based on this dicta in Board of Regents that I'm going to talk about in a minute. And federal courts have bought that argument that, yeah, so there's this need for cooperation. It's essential to the product. And heck, they say the word amateurism. So all these compensation limits are just as necessary to the product as the rules of the game. And that's just not true. So here's how the court addresses that. And it says, let's see, that some, and it puts some in italics, that some restraints are necessary to create or maintain a league sport does not mean all and he puts all in italics. Aspects of elaborate interleague cooperation are while a quick look, and he's talking about this bastardized antitrust immunity argument the NCAA made, while a quick look would often be enough to approve the restraints necessary to produce a game, a fuller review may be appropriate for others. And then he says that the NCAA's price-fixing wages for student-athletes fall on the far side of this line. They're on the other side of the earth from the rules of the game. And it says that uh, Division I basketball And FBS football can proceed and have proceeded without the education-related compensation restrictions the district court enjoined. The games go on. The games go on on and just destroys that argument. I mean, this argument that the NCAA has been relying on for almost 40 years, Gorsuch takes down in two paragraphs (laughs) because it's such a ridiculous argument on its face, but it speaks to the power of the NCAA as a propagandist. And then Gorsuch goes on to make some more comments about this quick look, this abbreviated differential review. And then he gets to this board of Regents' dicta. And again, this is the linchpin of the NCAA's arguments post Board of Regents that it should basically be immune from antitrust scrutiny because the U.S. Supreme Court has said so. So remember, Board of Regents was a business to business dispute, and you had these high powered football teams and interests, mostly from the South, suing the NCAA under antitrust laws because the NCAA at that time had an ironclad monopoly over the televised football market. And I've talked quite a bit about that. The court looked Looked at the contracts and said, this is pretty much a slam dunk antitrust violation and it struck down the NCAA's contracts and turned over to the free markets the future of televised football amateurism was not at issue in Board of Regents. It was not really raised as a pro-competitive justification because it really wasn't relevant the NCAA was saying really its basic argument was we don't have sufficient market power to act as a monopolist. There are other market opportunities out there and we can't violate antitrust laws if we don't have that kind of market power. And the court just rejected that. But this language that they rely on, because in the course of its analysis in Board of Regents, the court made this aside. And it was a 7-2 to two opinion against the NCAA. That gets lost in the way the NCAA talks about this uh, holy dicta, because the NCAA got its ass kicked in that case. But here's what the court said. And this is the language that the NCAA has been using for 37 years to really scare federal judges into buying into its amateurism scam. And And the court said this, The NCAA plays a critical role in the maintenance of a revered tradition of amateurism in college sports. There can be no question but that it needs ample latitude to play that role or that the preservation of the student athlete in higher education adds richness and diversity to intercollegiate athletics and is entirely consistent with the goals of the Sherman Act. And the Austin decision, Gorsuch says that language is just overblown. And he says, on the NCAA's telling, these observations, these offhand observations, foreclose any rule of reason review in this suit. And Gorsuch says, once more, we cannot agree. So that language was not essential to the court's ruling in Board of Regents, and that's why it's called dicta. And and dicta, in its most basic definition, is offhand language that is not necessary to sustain the ruling in a particular legal decision. And courts oftentimes make these offhand comments, and the question is, do they have any legal precedent? The NCAA has been saying that this dicta has uh, controlling legal precedential value, and that it is a statement that All of its amateurism-based compensation rules are presumptively legitimate and unchallengeable as a matter of law. The Supreme Court just slaps that down. And he says, or the decision says, student-athlete compensation rules were not even at issue in Board of Regents. And then Gorsuch says on behalf of the court, that's not a reasonable reading. And it says, the court simply did not have the occasion to declare, nor did it declare, the NCAA's compensation restrictions pro-competitive both in 1984 and forevermore. And then it uses that as a segue into how things have changed since 1984. And it gives some of these facts that show that uh, trying to apply the business environment that existed in 1984 to the business environment that exists in the 21st century. is just a a silly thing to do. And then the court turns to what I think is really the most essential antitrust immunity argument that the NCAA made, although they tried to disguise it. And the way that the court handles this, they pull that disguised argument out of the shadows and into the light, and they slap that baby down. So they say, the NCAA submits that a rule of reason analysis is inappropriate for still another reason because the NCAA and the member schools are not, quote, commercial enterprises, quote, and instead oversee intercollegiate athletics as an integral part of the undergraduate experience, essentially saying that antitrust laws can't even apply to us because we're not engaged in commercial activity. And again, that's the argument they explicitly made in the white suit in 2006, which which settled, then the O'Bannon suit, in 2009. They tried to uh, appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, but the court didn't take the case. But in their Supreme Court briefing in and they explicitly made this argument. We're not engaged in commercial activity. We're entitled to outright absolute antitrust immunity. It was only in Austin that they tried to disguise it, and then they sprang it in their uh, briefing in the U.S. Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court sees it for what it is, and it dismisses it. And again, in, in very short shrift, th- the other thing about this opinion, all these arguments that have been the centerpiece of the NCAA's uh, amateur based march through federal courts since Board of Regents, these arguments just get taken down one by one in very short shrift. And I think that is a testament to not only Gorsuch's efficiency here, but also the weakness of the NCAA's arguments. So it goes through that argument and, and tries to figure out how the NCAA is trying to fit that into a standard rule of reason analysis and says that it can't. And then it says this, With this much agreed, it is, and he's talking about the NCAA conceding that its compensation limits are anti-competitive. But Korsuch says, with this much agreed, it is unclear exactly what the NCAA seeks. And this is where they pull that disguised antitrust immunity argument out of the shadows and into the light. To the extent it means to propose a sort of judicially ordained immunity from the terms of the Sherman Act for its restraints of trade, that we should over. Overlook its restrictions because they happen to fall at the intersection of higher education, sports, and money. We cannot agree. This court has regularly refused materially identical requests from litigants seeking special dispensation from the Sherman Act on the ground that their restraints of trade serve uniquely important social objectives beyond enhancing competition. And that smack you heard was uh, the hand of the U.S. Supreme Court to the NCAA's argument for absolute antitrust immunity. Then uh, the court goes on and deals with all these threshold arguments, which really were the The centerpiece of the NCAA's appeal. And then they turn to the actual injunction order itself. And the way that they make this transition is really interesting. So the opinion says, while the NCAA devotes most of its energy to resisting the rule of reason in its usual form, the league lodges some objections to the district court's application of it as well. And they talk about how this injunction is really nothing what the NCAA has portrayed. It's very harmless, quite frankly, and entirely consistent With the NCAA's values as an education-based nonprofit. And I'm not going to go through that, but I'll just make this general observation. As the court is discussing how the court crafted its injunction order, it is very careful to reemphasize time and time again that the court was very thoughtful, very deliberate very even-handed. And the message that they're sending there is that the NCAA's characterization of Wilkin, Judge Wilkin, as this rogue agent with an agenda against the NCAA was ridiculous on its face. And I think they were saying, you shouldn't have made that argument. You shouldn't have come out of the blocks with that personal assault on a sitting federal judge who was simply doing her job. I guess there's one part of that, of its analysis of the injunction that I want to talk about, because one of the things that the NCAA didn't really acknowledge is that under the injunction that Judge Wilkin crafted, the NCAA had the authority to come back to the court. The court retained supervisory jurisdiction over the injunction, and if any of the people subject to the injunction had issues with it, they could come back to Judge Wilkin and she'd hear the arguments and, if necessary, modify the terms of the injunction, and the NCAA didn't talk about that. The court addresses that, and and it says that it, meaning the NCAA, has been free to seek clarification from the district court since the court issued its injunction three years ago. The NCAA remains free to do so today. To date, the NCAA sought clarification only once about the precise amount at which it can cap academic awards, and the question was quickly resolved. Before conjuring hypothetical concerns in this court, we believe it best for the NCAA to present any practically important question it has in the district court first. So what it's saying there is you have just made up all these gloom and doom scenarios, all this BS that is fundamentally inconsistent with the narrow terms of this injunction, and Judge Wilkins' willingness to take a look at any objections to the injunction as things play out. And it's an entirely reasonable injunction on that ground. And the court was saying to the NCAA, all of your fear mongering is garbage. And and then the court closes with this, and I think this is really important. So they say this is an overall discussion about the importance of antitrust laws and the role of the federal judges in applying those laws. And the court says, judges must remain aware that markets are often more effective than the heavy hand of judicial power when it comes to enhancing consumer welfare. And remember, that's supposed to be the touchstone analysis here, what's best for consumers. And judges must be open to clarifying and reconsidering their decrees in light of changing market realities. Courts reviewing complex business arrangements should, in other words, be wary about invitations to, quote, set sail on a sea of doubt, end quote. But we do not believe the district court fell prey to that temptation. Its judgment does not float on a sea of doubt, but stands on firm ground. An exhaustive factual record, A thoughtful legal analysis consistent with established antitrust principles and a healthy dose of judicial humility. A healthy dose of judicial humility. Take that, NCAA. Take that, Big Ten. You're out of control here. And this judge did her job, she did it well, and she did it with humility. Gavel, bang, end of case. And I'm only going to say a couple words about Justice Kavanaugh's concurring opinion. That got so much attention because he talked about racial justice. He specifically referenced that the laborers were largely African-American and that in a proper case, the reasoning of the of the court in this Austin decision could result in amateurism just being brought down altogether. But I thought one of the most significant portions of Kavanaugh's opinion was really the very beginning where he tries to right-size the NCAA. And so he leads by saying, the NCAA has long restricted the compensation and benefits that student-athletes may receive, and with surprising success... The NCAA has long shielded its compensation rules from ordinary antitrust scrutiny. I just want to stop there. That's a really important observation in a really important sentence. And what I think Kavanaugh is saying there is that for the last 37 years, you've gotten this irrational mileage out of this dicta from Board of Regents, and federal courts have just bowed to your conceptualization of amateurism and your authority as the sole national regulator in college sports. And that was not a justifiable and warranted deference. He goes on to say, Today, however, the court holds that the NCAA has violated the antitrust laws. The court's decision marks an important and overdue course correction. And I join the court's excellent opinion in full and then he closes out his opinion by saying the ncaa is not above the law and that line got a lot of attention i used it in my episode analyzing the decision when it came out but i think one of the most important things here is that this decision and kavanaugh i think he nailed it on this this was an overdue course correction on the ncaa's arrogance and its belief that it simply doesn't play by the rules or doesn't have to play by the same rules as any other industry. In America that ties into what I see as the the practical impact of this decision and a lot of that is really symbolic and so let me just go through some of the ways that I think this decision has influenced the thinking around the regulation of college sports and the rights of athletes and what may be happening uh, going forward so I just made some notes of these I don't know if they're logically ordered I'm just going to go through them as I haven't written down but one of the most important things that came came out of the decision, this is a legal issue, is that the NCAA is not entitled to any kind of judicial antitrust immunity. They can always go to Congress. But I have to say, the way that the court analyzed the NCAA's arguments for antitrust immunity, I think they suggested that they aren't very persuasive. So we'll see when the Power Five re-engage with Congress. But they're not going to get judicially created antitrust immunity, which also means that they're not above the law. They have to defend their compensation limits going forward under the antitrust laws and under the full rule of reason analysis the other thing that's really important again this is another legal issue so this has real impact and that is that this holy dicta from the Board of Regents has finally been given a proper burial. The NCAA has gotten mileage out of that for almost four decades, and that is over. Thank God. The other thing, and this I think is a legal consequence, part of the legal reasoning that I think has some precedential value going forward, and that is that because the NCAA or any other kind of sports league has to agree on certain basic rules in order for the product to exist at all. That does not mean that all of the rules are therefore presumptively valid and that there is an important and fundamental difference between the rules of the game and rules that fix the price of athlete labor at a level far below market value. Those two things aren't even on the same Planet. And the court rejected that. And that was one aspect of the NCAA's construction of the Board of Regents decision and the overall marketplace and its ability to be the sole definer of, of what its product is. That, that argument's gone. You, you can't bring in that argument to justify an unconscionable price fixing. Or wage fixing on the cost of labor. I think the other thing that is really important was the unanimity here because the NCAA is just so freaking dishonest in how it portrays its interest and and portrays the way that it has been treated in federal litigation. It's just a propaganda machine. That's its primary purpose. They're, They're a propaganda machine, and they've been so powerful for so long that they've gotten away with all this garbage. But the unanimity here was a rejection of the NCAA's arrogance, and the NCAA can no longer gaslight people Into thinking that if you don't agree with the NCAA, you're the problem. They did that with, tried to do that with Judge Wilkin. They tried to make her the problem. It was a gaslight technique. This BS that the NCAA pulls in this social series podcast, that if you think that Ohio State football and Lancaster Bible College tennis have absolutely nothing in common and shouldn't be under the same regulatory umbrella, then you're a fringe lunatic. It's that kind of thinking and that kind of nastiness. There's just a nastiness in the way that the NCAA comes in with its my way or the highway, pointing fingers and making uh, baseless accusations and taking positions that are simply indefensible, and they've done it with great success. I, I think the unanimity is just a uh, slight Slap down of that way of thinking. And I just don't think that the NCAA is going to be able to march into federal court or any other court in the future with its silk stocking lawyers and its intimidating power... And just steamroll judges and the judicial process. That Those days are over. And this ties into the personal attacks that the NCAA and its in system stakeholder beneficiaries and then its minions out in the media and in the sports entertainment industrial complex make. And that is that the NCAA can create instantaneous consent to obviously absurd principles, and then they can sell those in the public through their propaganda techniques and create the impression that there's consensus on that and that if you disagree with these ridiculous principles, then you're the problem because everybody agrees. You're the only one who doesn't. And I also just want to say this. When you look at the judges that analyzed the Austin case, there were thirteen judges. One district court judge, three circuit court judges in the ninth circuit, and then nine US Supreme Court justices. All thirteen of those federal jurists rejected the NCAA's fundamental arguments about its business model and its use of the principle of amateurism 13 to 0 and i just love that unanimity there is absolute consensus nobody disagrees who has been in a decision-making seat in the federal judiciary in this Alston case with the fact that the NCAA's amateurism-based compensation limits are basically indefensible. I just couldn't imagine a more fitting statement in this case. So there you have it. That is number two, and it was a big one. And again, I think... The most important takeaway here is at the symbolic level because the uh, NCAA is just not going to be able to march into federal courts and serve up the same garbage that they've been serving up for 40 years now. So with that, I'm going to close this episode out. And then in the next episode, we're going to go to number one. And you may be thinking after this Austin analysis, what could be better than that? Well, I'm going to keep you in suspense. So I want to thank you for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologue. Take care.